No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Um, unfortunately, uh, Marilia can't be with us tonight. She's on an extended leave, uh, but... We have Brittany Kaiser. I mean, this is so exciting for me because I think she's an amazing person. First, she volunteered for Obama's presidential campaign. Then she helped get Donald Trump elected. Uh, now, uh, she's, she's uh, Brittany, who is an entrepreneur and activist and globally recognized expert in data protection and privacy, is raising millions in cryptocurrency to help the Ukrainian effort to resist Russian aggression. She's the co-founder of Own Your Own Data, and she's uh, uh, an author. They've done a movie about her, and we're so excited to have her here. I'm so excited to have a conversation with her. Brittany, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me tonight. Absolutely, Senator Brown. Thank you so much for having me here again. Yeah, you know, it, this, again, is right. You were here when when uh, you first came out and talked about what Facebook had done uh, to, to, to uh, gather information on all of us. I told you, my wife is a librarian. She thinks that everything you say is brilliant because, uh, you know, she deals with this every day. But can we start there and talk? There's a, there's a documentary that features you called The Great Hack. If you haven't seen this documentary, folks, you need to watch it. It's a little scary. And the first thing I want to say about it is in the documentary, they say that uh, there's 5,000 data points that have been collected on tens of millions of people. Can you explain that? I I mean, I would say to you, there isn't 5,000 data points in my whole life. I don't know. What, do you do you know what I had for breakfast and what I'm watching in, on TV and what I'm looking at on the Internet? Or, are those the kind of things you're talking about? Yeah, it, it really is. So in the film specifically, when The Great Hack was talking about the 5,000 data points, it was really talking about 5,000 hard facts about you. So your age, places where you'd like to spend money, how much money you spend there, where you go on vacation, a hotel that you've stayed at, uh, the places that you might visit for work meetings, where you're buying your coffee, where you'd like to go. And so those are the types of, of facts that help marketing companies or political parties 
predict your behavior. So they can figure out what type of new clothes you might want to buy or what party you may or may not vote for. So th that's why it's so important that they collect these data points. Now, I, I wish 5,000 was the end of it. I would really say these days the amount of information that's collected about you is really in the billions of data points. And what I mean by that is a lot of the data that is collected about your behavior is incredibly granular. For instance, they're not just going to collect information about an article you read. Companies are collecting information about how long you spend reading that article, where you scroll down to, what images you take more time to look at. And that's really where it starts to get a little bit creepy. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is one of the reasons why I became a whistleblower in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And it just, uh, you know, it, at the beginning of the movie, I've got to tell you, Brittany, I'm thinking to myself, well, this is what advertisers have always done, right? They've looked for ways to to find out what, you know, the best way to sell to you. But by the end of the movie, when you realize how much information is involved and the amount of manipulation that can be done and the strategies involved, it's just really scary. I mean, it just screams 1984. You know, we all read that. I don't know if you read it, but when I was in college, everybody read that book, you know, and and uh, that's what it seems to me. Oh, my God, if the government or, or some evil entity has control of this information, boy, what they could do with it. Let, let me talk to you about one thing in the film that I don't know if you were involved in this or not, but the no vote campaign. I thought that just, you know, was so cynical. Can do you know? Can you tell us a little bit about that? How how? Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. That, so that that it, actually happened uh, way before I joined the company. That was um, many years before I was a part of mm -hmm. Cambridge Analytica. But it was something that I had documentation on from our company database of case studies and what they had done in the past. And so this was actually a campaign in Trinidad and Tobago where they started a youth movement about the fact that the government was so corrupt that there's no point in even voting. And so it was called the Do So Campaign, which means don't do it, uh, which is not what it sounds like in English. But yeah, uh, do so means do not do it. And so the, the youth movement was putting out uh, do so signs and campaigns and songs and graffiti in the streets. And so the, the reason why they put that campaign together was because the data showed that the only way the opposition party could win was if they won the youth vote. So if the majority of the youth were not voting, uh, which, uh, you know, that's what the data showed would be the only way they could win, um, it, it meant that the client of Cambridge Analytica was able to succeed specifically because uh, those youth votes did not show up to the polls. And now that's obvious voter suppression which I was able to couple with evidence from many other campaigns, including the Trump campaign, to prove that those campaigns were not won legitimately and really that election laws were broken in order for those victories to actually uh, come about. Well, you know, on the one hand, as a campaigner, a campaign all my life, it you, you know, I found it very intriguing and, and that they they took that they took that approach and and you know how risky it, it probably was but uh but it's so cynical i mean it's just it's just crazy and it shows you really how this stuff can be used 
in 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 such a negative way. Um, it, yeah, it really it, can. I mean, that was um, for me going from uh, someone who worked for free on the Obama campaign, and then uh, and then later was working at Cambridge Analytica while part of our company worked on the Trump campaign. There were such stark differences between good actors and bad actors, which is that on the Obama campaign, we had a rule where it was only positive messaging, where we did zero negative campaigning. We would not even entertain negative comments about uh, Republicans or even other Democrats on, um, on any of our social media accounts. So we made the hard decision to take off comments most of the time from our social media accounts because we didn't want to host negative comments whatsoever. Uh, whereas on the Trump campaign, they found through a lot of their data science experiments, uh, not just in the Trump campaign, but also uh, the Trump super PAC, which ran the Defeat Crooked Hillary campaign, they found that negative messaging, especially targeting negative messaging at people who were shown to be neurotic, uh, that that was the most successful campaigning that they were doing. So they ended up putting a lot of the money just towards negative campaigning. And, and when I first found that out, that was the first time where I, I really considered uh, that I needed to give this information to authorities and legislators. Yeah, you know, another thing that I find really scary is I have uh, adult children uh, that range in age from 24 to 29, and I don't think they watch TV. I don't think they... Uh, I can't remember the last time I saw them watching TV. Uh, so they're not getting their news from independent uh, broadcasters. They're getting all their news over the Internet. And it seems to me that given that, and, and, and that's certainly going to be more and more the case, I think, uh, the type of, of, of work that you can do once you know this data uh, how you can manipulate it, 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 you know, it's really scary. And I think that people look to, uh, for information that reinforces what they already believe in the first place anyway. So, you know, they're really not looking for the facts. They're looking for other people to say, yeah, you're right. And that's what this is about, right? I mean, you can do that yeah, over, really and over, over and over and over and over again. That Right. I mean, you're talking about confirmation bias, which means, uh, you know, people are, as you said, looking for information that helps them confirm what they already want to think is true. And unfortunately, the way that data science works, and especially social media news feeds these days, and even Google search results, is that the data can tell what you are interested in clicking on, what you want to hear, what are what your habits are, and therefore they will show you clickbait headlines, fake news, content that has nothing to do with news whatsoever, that is in the lane of thinking that you already are. A lot of people call it, um, you know, the social or thought bubbles, and it means that you are more radicalized towards only believing what you already thought because you don't see anything else. You do not see opposing viewpoints. And that's one of the biggest issues, I think, in both social media and in uh, data-driven search engines that we have today. So am I right in, in saying that Cambridge Analytica was a hired gun, that they would just uh, go with anybody who, who was willing to pay them? 
I mean, there there was no real, um, I don't know, consternation over anything they did. They really saw themselves as kind of a benign actor that was just helping a client. Is it was that their approach? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like that. Uh, because Cambridge wasn't just working for conservative candidates, so to say. You might think so since it was, you know, the the Mercer family that was funding Cambridge Analytica, but the parent company, the SCL Group, Strategic Communication Laboratories, which was headquartered in London, worked for governments all over the world and political parties that were not in government, from liberal to conservative to green parties to parties that are not even defined in Western politics. And so it was really... What connections did someone in the company have and who was able to afford a contract with very high-level political consultants? And if they could afford it and they signed and paid, then then Cambridge would go work for them, and, and that's really how it was decided. Now, the only way uh, that that works in the United States is once you work for either the Democrats or the Republicans, uh, you cannot then work for the other party because then you have access to sensitive data that exists just from that party. So once you've worked for one candidate on one side, it, it really um, precludes you from, from working for the other side, meaning that Cambridge did not have the opportunity to work for Democrats, although uh, we did have a board decision that said we could work for independents. So it was just conservative and independents and, and no one else. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, we carried it. <clears throat> I worked for the Democratic Party and we carried it to extremes where uh, we wouldn't even have Pepsi Cola at a Democratic event because Coca Cola <clears throat> contributed money to Democrats and Pepsi Cola contributed money to the Republicans. I mean, it was really, you know, we, we really carried that to extremes. So that's so true. But is there anything that we can? I know you have a, an organization you started called Own Your Own Data. Uh, but beyond that, is there something that we can do or is it really kind of caveat emptor? We have to be aware, as buyers, we have to be aware of every every time we put data out there. Yeah, I would say, uh, unfortunately, still today, it takes a lot of personal initiative in order for you to keep your data safe or private or protected from being used for certain purposes. So it really takes someone being incredibly vigilant and all of us thinking about whether we want to download or use certain applications on our phone and give those companies access to our data, whether we want to use more private applications like Signal instead of regular text or WhatsApp or perhaps using Brave Browser or DuckDuckGo instead of Google Chrome. So that's a personal decision, which is why my Own Your Data Foundation does digital literacy training. So we teach governments and companies and individuals, especially children in schools, uh, how to protect their data rights and what those data rights are. We teach cybersecurity protocols and media literacy so people can spot fake news and disinformation, as well as being able to prevent hacking and phishing. Uh, you know, we, we teach counter cyberbullying and screen time management so you can protect your mental and physical health while using technology. And so unfortunately, really, uh, you know, the, the educational piece is generational change. It, it doesn't solve anything immediately, but I try to encourage governments and companies that it, this is an essential part of employee training 
And I'm also working with different ministries and departments of education globally to try to get them to implement digital literacy education in schools. Because until laws and regulations are comprehensive and technology companies actually abide by those new laws, uh, which obviously that's going to take quite a few years to, uh, to really fix that, it's education and people taking care of their, their themselves that is going to make the biggest change in the meantime. Well, you know, again, my wife, who's a librarian, uh, makes her kids read the user agreements when they when they sign up, and and she says they never do that uh, on their own, you know, and they're always surprised when they read them some of the things they find. And I've got to tell you, as somebody that's ADD, all you have to do is put a, a two-page user agreement in front of me, and I won't read it. You, you know, it, it's horrible. I should do more of that. But what when 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 we make laws, when we when we try to control this stuff, what kind of things can we do? What kind of things can legislators and government do to control this stuff? Well, I think right now we're only seeing. Uh, in the United States, uh, I'm talking about specifically, we're only seeing real movement on data protection law uh, state by state. We haven't really had a strong movement on the federal side because these topics keep getting politicized, which they shouldn't be, because these are topics that matter to everyone, no matter what party they vote for or not. And it's just so important for us to be able to have comprehensive legislation on the national level. Now, if we're looking at some of the most successful state-based laws that the federal government should be uh, looking to, I would obviously look at the state of Wyoming, California, New York, Virginia. And even though New York hasn't passed legislation, the New York Privacy Act is incredibly comprehensive. We have CPRA in California. We have um, the privacy law in Virginia. We have uh, now 23 laws on digital asset definitions in the state of Wyoming, including that your uh, your digital assets are intangible personal property, which gives individuals more legal recourse over their data if they are to be hacked or if their data is misused. And in California now, for small and medium-sized companies, SMEs, we, we have a state fund that actually helps with compliance. So for the first time, there are now, uh, there are now uh, mechanisms of assistance for companies that feel like compliance with data protection laws is really giving them a lot of strain. And I think it's really important for governments to have that because as we've seen with the, I don't want to say complete failure, but I would say, um, you know, the semi-failed implementation of GDPR in Europe, that once we try to ratify these laws nationally, it's very difficult for companies to comply. And I think some of them are unwilling and some of them just do not have the capacity or the expertise to figure out how to give people a copy of their data or how to stop using people's data for marketing or even how to delete it because back-end data systems these days are not very well organized and it is not a very straightforward thing for companies to do. They have to do a lot of updating, yeah, a lot of new architecture, a lot of matching and hygiening of these data sets, and sometimes they can't even promise you that they've gotten it all, even if they do try to delete it. So it's uh, it's definitely something where um, we're still in the early stages, and I, I think we'll we'll hopefully be able to see this pick up speed over the next few years.
And given what you just said, would it make sense for the government to incentivize this some way for as as they create laws to incentivize this for for businesses to give them uh, tax breaks or provide them with resources so that people that don't have the resources to do this could do it? Absolutely. I, I think all of those are good ideas and it's going to be different for every state or every country. Uh, one of the really interesting models that I've seen, I just came back from uh, speaking at a government conference in Sweden where they had a lot of the country's top technology companies and people that deal with data within government departments there. And I was uh, giving, um, you know, a lecture and some training to everyone there. And what I found out was that the government of Sweden actually has a government cybersecurity standard. So the government actually gives you a certificate if your company reaches the government standards. And although that's not a, a tax break, it's an incentive for companies to meet that standard. And then you get so many more clients because everyone trusts that if you are the third party that is processing their data, that their data is more likely safe with you than with your competitors. So I think that kind of model, having third party standards, just like the advertising industry does, would be incredibly helpful and is an interesting model that we should consider in the United States. Yeah, I agree. And I know the Swedes have always been uh, uh, way ahead when it comes into advertising. They don't allow uh, certain types of advertising to children. And, and uh, you know, they, they've really been leaders. I remember that from when I was in college. They were fighting to, to, to keep advertising uh, aimed at children off the air. Uh, so um, let me ask you, you wrote a book, Targeted. Uh, tell me, what's it about? Well, obviously, it's about keeping your data safe. But is there anything you could tell us about the book that that uh, would be a revelation, I think, to, to our listeners? Well, uh, what's interesting about that book is that we really focused um, with the strategy on this book to be a memoir of my time at Cambridge Analytica so that people that find themselves in similar positions can actually feel empowered or encouraged that they have the ability to do something better with their lives and make a change. So it shows me as, you know, a young, enthusiastic and passionate activist that was really excited about learning more about data science. And I joined this company while I'm writing uh, my doctoral thesis for my PhD and was learning a lot, obviously ended up learning a lot more than I bargained for about data. And I slowly realized that not everyone in the world uses data just for a benign strategy or for positive social impact, that some people will use data only to gain a personal advantage, whether that be optimizing for profit or optimizing for power. So it really shows a lot of people that are working in tech companies, um, especially that you might join with the best of intentions, but once you realize that something bad is going on there, that there are ways to get out. And so it takes, uh, it takes the reader through my entire uh, whistleblowing process, uh, everything that happened to me, all of the things that I was encountering in terms of investigations and testimony and activism and speaking at conferences, and then uh, brings people to my realizations of 
what we actually need to do in all in order to solve the problems that I thought Cambridge Analytica and especially with Cambridge Analytica's uh, relationship with Facebook. So I, I think it should be inspiring to people to think about, okay, you know, not not everything is what you originally expect it to be. And if you think that you're in a position to change things for the better, that you do have the opportunity to do that. Uh, you were called before for uh, Parliament, and 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 Zuck, Mr. Zuckerberg has been called before Congress. Do you think that any of the things that have come out in 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 that testimony uh, from either one of you is is going to help? Um, uh, I, I really didn't follow it. I, I saw a little Mr. Zuckerberg, but it seemed to me that there were no revelations there. Is it is that true, or do you think it it, it helped to have the, the the hearing, especially his hearing before Congress? Well, I think one of the most important parts uh, about those series of uh, testimonies uh, in both Congress and in British Parliament and in European Parliament between, you know, me and one of the other whistleblowers and, uh, it, you know, the Facebook team, not just Mark Zuckerberg, as well as other people from Cambridge Analytica, was that a lot of the legislators and regulators that work on these topics had the opportunity to ask questions about how the technology actually works. I don't think before those series of testimonies that there was as much uh, as much knowledge on behalf of people in the decision-making seat about how data is collected, about how it's used, about the opportunities for improving how those systems work. So what I've really spent my time doing ever since becoming a whistleblower, which has now been nearly four and a half years ago, uh, is working with legislators and regulators and bringing them together with technologists so that they can ask the questions that they would like to ask and that they can be informed and educated because it's only possible to make good legislation if the people writing the laws understand how the technology works and understand what the real problems are that we're trying to solve. Well, and do we need to uh, do more to get people involved in this and get them uh, agitated about this uh, kind of stuff? Because I know when I was at the DNC, for example, they just created the, the uh, FEC to control contributions uh, to politicians. And the politicians wrote the laws and they left such large loopholes in those laws because it was about giving money to them that that really you can if if you want to give as much money as you want to a politician, he'll figure out a way to take it. So is that um, is that going to be a problem with these laws as well? Do we need to get people fired up to put pressure on Congress to do the right thing? Or if they create a, a system, will they create a system again with lots of big loopholes in it so they can manipulate the data and use it for their own purposes? What do you think? Well, uh, unfortunately, I, I think what you're saying is what we've seen thus far, which is that in California uh, with CCPA and now the update to it, CPRA, what, we're, what we've seen is that Facebook lawyers have declared that they are not um, are are not subject to the law because the law states 
for instance, that uh, this is this is for companies that um, process and sell people's data. Uh, and and Facebook claims that you know their business model isn't to sell data, so it does not uh, it, it does not actually apply to them, which is completely shocking because a lot of these laws were written specifically to regulate Facebook. So when we're faced with loopholes and issues like that, we need to become a lot more technical and a lot more detailed in how these laws are written. I think you can see a lot of interesting laws that have come out over the past few years that get a lot more technical than the first data protection and privacy laws that we had come out in the United States. And what I mean by that is we're getting deep into some of the very technical issues that are causing a lot of big problems in our society. For instance, the banning of algorithmic amplification. What that means is when an algorithm uses data to push something up to the top of everyone's newsfeed to amplify its reach and its engagement, meaning instead of, you know, tens of thousands of people seeing something, it might be tens of millions. And those are clickbait headlines, headlines that are fear mongering that are meant to uh, uh, that are meant to make people scared and uh, or make people angry that that's where you see a lot of algorithmic amplification and it's because there's certain words there are certain search terms um, there are certain types of photos that the algorithms will respond to and so banning the the negative use cases of algorithms is a highly technically written law um, that is not something that you commonly see in privacy law. And I think if we don't get more detailed, we're going to run the risk of these laws not actually solving any of the problems that they were meant to solve in the first place. Well, you know, I, I, as I said to you uh, when we met uh, earlier this week briefly, um, yeah, that's a, uh, I see that problem because it's so hard for me to even follow the conversation sometimes when you talk about this stuff. And, you know, we've got members of Congress who, you know, they were they were personal injury lawyers before they got elected. You know, what do they know about this stuff? So, uh, you know, it's easier. It, I would imagine it's easy to get over on them if, if they don't have people that know exactly what's going on. Um, let's, let's move on to what you're doing for Ukraine, which is just incredible. And let me just say for our listeners that, uh, uh, Brittany has helped raise a hundred million dollars or more in cryptocurrency to help the effort, uh, the war effort in Ukraine for the Ukrainians. And, uh, Alex Bornikov, who's the deputy, I hope I pronounced his name right, who's the deputy minister for digital transformation, said you've changed the war effort in Ukraine. He calls you, she, he said what you're doing is amazing. So, first of all, how did you get involved in this? Why, I mean, obviously Ukraine is, is, is a problem that we should all care about, but why did you get involved and, and and explain how you're able to do this? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, on February 24th, when Ukraine was invaded by Russia in what is now a war of aggression, uh, I immediately knew that I wanted to do something. Um, I am 
part Ukrainian. I've had Ukrainian refugees in my family. Again, they, you know, escaped Russia about 100 years ago, the last time Russians were murdering Jews in Kiev. That's where my family comes from. And I took this really personally. So, um, you know, I was trying to figure out what to do. And I was talking to some friends. And one of my friends said, you know, I have uh, I know a lot of people in the Ukrainian government. Can I connect you with them? They're wanting to raise money in cryptocurrency. And so this was Saturday the 26th, so less than two days after Ukraine was first invaded. And uh, what I did was help set them up with cybersecurity experts and help them set up uh, crypto wallets in a, a safe way where money could be accessed by uh, Ukrainian government officials that were already outside of the country just in case. Uh, the offices in Kiev and elsewhere were attacked and then helped uh, with the social media campaign. So pushing out all of the all of the tweets, especially that were requesting the world to assist specifically in sending Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, USDT, which is Tether, and now uh, 16 other cryptocurrencies. And what was so incredible about that was, one, we got a huge response where money started pouring in from people all over the world. And this was on a Saturday, mind you, when most banks around the world are closed. And then more money kept on coming on Sunday, uh, again, where basically all banks in the entire world are closed. And by Monday, uh, we had raised over $50 million dollars and by Monday evening, when the European Union said that they wanted to uh, donate 100 million euro in humanitarian aid assistance, uh, before that money hit the bank account, we had raised over 109 million. Uh, it took the European Union two weeks to send the money. And the second that people send cryptocurrencies, at the most, it takes, you know, minutes. Um, but, but sometimes seconds, depending which currency we're talking about, the Ukrainians had that money immediately. So the first medical kits, the first food rations for the army, the first uh, bulletproof vest and night vision goggles, and all of that was purchased with cryptocurrency because they had no other humanitarian aid money that came in for weeks. And so that's why it's been such a big deal, and we've continued the campaign. There's still money coming in from all over the world, and it's money that can't be shut down by any bank. And during war, that's incredibly important that people can get money instantly and be able to spend it instantly on whatever they need. Well, you know, that is important. And I think I don't under, really understand cryptocurrency. Maybe you could explain it a little bit. But uh, I really think that it is a... Uh, the thing of the future and to have a worldwide uh, kind of currency would be more egalitarian than, than the system we have now. Is that right? I mean, for me, I, I completely agree with that sentiment. And I think for our listeners that don't understand cryptocurrencies, there, there's a few things to understand. And one of them is that uh, cryptocurrencies are peer-to-peer -peer systems. So instead of me sending a transaction through a bank, which means I have to take money from my bank and send it to your bank, I cannot send money directly to you. I have to get money from a bank account. The bank has to approve it, and the bank needs to send it to your bank account. 
Whereas if we were sending money in cryptocurrency, I would send money directly from me to you. There is no third party that is holding that money for us. No one needs to process the transaction besides you and me. I send you the money and, and it's there immediately. And so it's fast. Uh, first of all, it can't be stopped or frozen by anyone, uh, which is the next most important. And thirdly, it's transparent. So most of the popular cryptocurrencies are on public ledgers. So you can see every transaction that has ever been made, which means it's trackable and traceable, meaning that if you ever commit a crime using cryptocurrencies, it can always be traced and you will eventually always be caught. Uh, so that that's a really, really good thing that governments uh, seem to not fully understand. <laughs> uh, yeah. Although they're starting to. Um, and then also it really helps for tracking and traceability. So for instance, um, the, the biggest humanitarian aid fund for Ukraine, which is what we, we launched, it's called Aid for Ukraine. You can find it on donate.thedigital.gov.ua. Uh, it, you can see all of the money that comes in from people all over the world, and you can see every transaction that the Ukrainian government takes out and where they're sending it. And so they're producing reports about what each of those transactions actually refers to. So, you know, this amount of money was spent on bulletproof vests today. This amount of money was spent on, uh, you know, imaging drones. This amount of money was spent on food rations. And so it, it's so helpful to have that kind of transparency, which you, you barely ever find in government whatsoever, but especially not during wartime, especially not money that would normally be spent by a department or, or ministry of defense. Uh, so this is a huge deal and an absolute revolution in humanitarian aid where I feel like a lot of people are afraid to give money because they don't know where it's going and they're not sure if it's just going to go into someone's pocket, which has been a big issue for nonprofits and NGOs that are working in crisis situations. And so this really helps with, uh, with public trust and, of course, with continued support. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lots of charities out there actually tell you how much money goes into services. They don't tell you, it's not that specific, but they'll say 75% of the money we raise goes to uh, directly to services because lots of people are concerned. There have been lots of charities over the years that use the majority of their money just to raise money. Uh, so I, I would think crypto would be great in that regard, that people would feel a lot more confident. How, how is it how is it valued? How, how is crypto valued? Because I noticed the value goes up and down, just like regular currency. So how, how, how is it valued? I mean, it, it's different for every cryptocurrency. So, you know, every single one has its own economic system. And it's based on different forms of transaction, of value, of the community that uses that money. Uh, and, and so just like other currencies, but also just like commodities, uh, it goes up and down. I would say most cryptocurrencies are not traditionally defined as currencies, but they're more commodities. So just like people might purchase gold or silver, as an investment, you know, gold and silver are not securities in and of themselves, and they're not currencies, even though some currencies are backed by gold, for instance, or have been in the past. 
Uh, so it's just um, a, a digital asset. It's an asset class that can be used as a currency for normal transactions that you would think of spending regular currencies on, but also it can be held and saved as a store of value. Uh, and that's why you're seeing all these different cryptocurrencies with values going up and down because they all refer to different things. They're all used by different numbers of people, um, every single network. So because these are digital currencies, uh, they all have different underpinning technologies. And the ways that those technologies function and what types of businesses or governments are using that technology, of course, goes into the fluctuation of the price and whether or not big institutions are investing in those currencies or commodities or not uh, also makes a difference, especially over the past couple of years where there's been a rise in popularity and people investing into these types of digital assets. So I wish I could give you one answer, but it really depends on which type of coin you're talking about, which I think you would see just in, in the regular analog world with, with anything that is normally traded globally. Well, and so I'm a business. Uh, I have to accept cryptocurrency, right? I have to do something uh, to to uh, uh, make myself available to accept cryptocurrency. Is that right? Businesses actually have to sign up to be able to accept it. Yeah, it, it's just like you would use any other um, credit card processing system or accept Apple Pay and stuff like that. There's tons of different uh, ways that that businesses can accept cryptocurrency, and you can even let people make a cryptocurrency transaction, and that can automatically turn that digital asset into a fiat currency if you don't plan on actually holding cryptocurrencies as a business. So now there's just so many products that are out there for businesses to be able to do that that it's starting to become really easy. And in, in fact, there are businesses all over the country that accept Bitcoin in the U.S. And now there's entire countries that are accepting cryptocurrencies like the UAE, like the Philippines, like El Salvador, where you can go into regular shops anywhere in the country and you can spend digital currency. So it's definitely on the rise in popularity. And I'm seeing more and more governments every day that are helping implement that at a national scale. Well, we're on, while we're on the subject of Ukraine, can you tell people, give that uh, website again where they can uh, 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 donate. Uh, how, how can they best help your effort? How can our listeners best help your effort in Ukraine? Is there a website they can go to to contribute? Uh, what can they do? Absolutely. So there's a, a few different ways that I think are uh, the best ways for people to give. Of course, uh, if you're interested in Aid for Ukraine, which is the not only the biggest humanitarian aid fund, but it's the only one that is 100% transparent, that has quarterly reporting of exactly how all these funds are being spent, it's really interesting. You can go and see on the website, which is donate.thedigital.gov.ua. And so you can donate in 16 different cryptocurrencies or you can donate with a regular card or your bank account using normal currencies. And so this is an incredible effort amongst tons of different cryptocurrency exchanges, banks, and the Ministry of Digital Transformation in Ukraine. And so you can see exactly how all the money has been spent, 
where it's going and what they're looking to achieve. I think that's a great way if you're just going to straight up donate. Now, if you want to be involved in something that is a little bit different, but for me has started taking up a lot of my time, uh, it, this is, I, I have this cultural project, which to me really is a genocide prevention project. I think this will ring true for a lot of your listeners, which is that what's happening right now in Ukraine is defined as a genocide, which means that Russia is attempting to completely wipe out Ukrainian culture. It means they're targeting cultural heritage sites and are specifically bombing churches, theaters, museums, uh, and, you know, really important culture. And traditionally, we've seen in genocide all over the world that the aggressor tries to do this because it stops the people that they're fighting against from having anything left to fight for. It undermines their hope and their willpower uh, to continue fighting. And so what we're trying to do right now is to preserve Ukrainian culture. And what this really means is that we are taking all available data that is satellite data, that is architectural plans, uh, that is drone scanning data, for instance, of cultural heritage sites, and we are rebuilding them digitally. So we are going to have a digital copy of every single heritage site in Ukraine, even for the ones that have already been bombed, because hundreds of them have been bombed uh, by Russia, unfortunately. We are going to rebuild those digitally, even if they don't currently physically exist. And so we are creating a digital museum where people from all over the world through an app and through a web application can access and enjoy incredible Ukrainian heritage pieces of art and culture and buildings and visit these digitally in the metaverse and in our digital museum. And so this is called Heritage Hub, the Ukraine Heritage Hub. So you can go to heritagehub.org. And it's really exciting because we have loads of big tech companies that are helping us do this so that we can get all of the data available and make sure that all Ukrainian heritage is somewhere that cannot be bombed. And we're using this to also raise money to rebuild the physical buildings that have already been destroyed. So this is a hugely exciting project, and it has nothing to do with, you know, arming or supporting the military. So a lot of people prefer to get involved in a project like this that is, um, you know, a, essentially a cultural heritage project. And so if anyone that is listening to this is interested in that, you can write to me at Brittany, which is B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, at heritagehub.org. We're accepting all kinds of partners that are interested in getting involved. We are a nonprofit foundation based in Brussels uh, because we are um, getting the support of big organizations um, uh, in Europe, and that's where a lot of them are based. So uh, I'm really excited that that is something that people can get involved with now. We only launched it a few weeks ago, and we're already sending scanning drones to Ukraine so that they can uh, start scanning all of the heritage sites. And, uh, you know, I, I can't wait for the world to be able to see this and for other countries to be able to make use of the technology that we're building. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I think and I think that 
uh, shouldn't we do this to all heritage sites all over the world anyway? You know that 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 may uh, you know come under attack or be destroyed by some natural disaster. I mean, it seems to me that this would be prudent to do to every every uh, thing of historical significance uh, in the world. So the technology you're creating, yeah, I, I can see where it'd be useful over and over again. Um, yeah, me, uh, we, we totally agree, which is why, you know, we're, we're accepting all types of partners from around the world that want to help us build this. And then we expect to be able to, uh, to give, you know, free or discounted licenses to other organizations around the world that want to implement this in their own country. I think there's a lot of places where cultural heritage is at risk, small mm-hmm. island nations because of climate change, for instance, other conflict zones. Uh, you know, there, there's so many different applications of it. So we're trying to scale it up as quickly as possible. Well, that's great. Yeah, we even see it here in Washington where we're trying to keep the Jefferson Memorial from sinking into the Potomac River right now. Uh, but anyway, we're, you know, you, you've worked on, I, I want to think, I want to talk about what's next for Brittany Kaiser because it always seems that you've got, like a zillion things going. I, I don't know how you can keep up with all of it, I guess, because you're young and you have an, a lot of energy, uh, but I, I find you amazing. And uh, what about public office? You, you, you've you worked on campaigns. You you worked with a guy named Brock Pierce. He's running for uh, Senate in Vermont, but you worked on a campaign for him earlier. Uh, he's a former uh, Disney actor and a crypto millionaire. Uh, how about Brittany Kaiser? You ready to run for governor of Texas or uh, senator or <laughs> or, 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 or I mean, I'll make the first contribution. Let me say that to your campaign. But but what about you're that? Amazing. I know you're I know you're a new mom, so so you know it's you understand it's a very demanding thing to do. But what do you think about that? We need people. Yeah, I you mean- know. Go ahead. Funnily enough, people have been telling me to run for office my entire life, (laughs) ever since I was a little girl. And this was way before I even worked in politics. So I hear it all of the time. It very much has, uh, I I would say, uh, infiltrated my consciousness. And it's something that I'm very interested to do at some point. There's not a particular seat or office that, uh, that I'm interested in. It's just, you know, I would be very willing to, uh, to serve wherever I am most needed. And so we'll see uh, when that opportunity comes around, um, whether that's very local office from, you know, school board to something that's more, you know, statewide or, or national. Uh, I just want to see where my time can best be spent. And I think for the next uh, couple of years, I'm probably going to be very, very focused on Ukraine. And so it, if it's a position that is involved with anything else besides that, uh, I'd probably have to wait a couple elections to consider it. But but I will let you know that it's something that's definitely on my mind. I just don't have too much of a, um, you know, uh, uh, too much of a uh, near-term perspective on it. I see it as something that I have the opportunity to do at any point in my life. I'm still incredibly young, so I would still be one of the the youngest people in a <laughs> in a, a statewide or, or national office. So I think I've got a bit of time to consider what's best. Well, let me just throw something in there. I'm an amazing campaigner. 
I'm getting older every day. I'm willing to volunteer and work for free. So don't wait too damn long because I want to be involved. I want to get you elected to something. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, uh, you're so just, kind of you. well, it's not kind at all. You have obviously have amazing people skills if you can do some of the things that you've done already. Um, but let me ask you, since we're running out of time here, is there anything that you want to say that I haven't asked you or that you want to add? Well, I, I, I think because so many of your listeners are probably um, incredibly politically active, I think there's, you know, there's a, a few asks that I have for nearly anyone that I speak to, uh, which is, you know, whether, whether it's, um, you know, a virtual audience or a physical audience, I always say, uh, you know, write to your legislators or call your legislators and tell them that you care about some of these topics. And so I would say, Tell them that you care about data protection and privacy, that you care about the regulation of social media, that you care about the United States, or if you're from another country, that you care about your country supporting Ukraine. Uh, you know, those are all of the things that I'm working on every day and that I think are so incredibly important and that will make such a big impact. If everyone makes those phone calls, if you've never done it before, it's really easy. You can call and leave a voicemail. People don't always pick up. In fact, most of the time it's leaving a voicemail. Or you can write to your representatives in just an email if you're, you're someone that is, uh, you know, feels like you, you want to put out a full letter or, you know, have more to say than might fit on a voice message. I really recommend doing that because it makes such a difference. You, of course, Senator Bound, know what that means and your constituents are reaching out to you. You know what they want you to stand for. You know, you're there to represent them. So I think everyone here that doesn't have that type of relationship with the people who represent them, well, you know, you either voted them in or your neighbors voted them in. And so it's important to have that relationship whether they were the person you voted for or not, and let them know what you care about. Let them know what you want them to be working for in office. Uh, you know, that's that's the entire point of democracy, and I feel like a lot of people don't actually exercise their rights as often as they should. Well, you know, and I don't think that a lot of people understand, Brittany, how how effective it can be, you know, you don't need 10,000 phone calls, you know, uh, 50 phone calls from constituents can make all the difference in the world. I mean, they really can change uh, a senator or, or representative's position uh, on a particular issue. So, yeah, that's terribly important. Well, thank you so much for being with us. You're an amazing guest. You're always welcome back anytime you want to. I wish you continued success. I hope that we will stay in touch. And, you know, we leave the show every week with a song, and uh, we dedicate it to the person that was on the show. And this song goes out to you, Brittany Kaiser, because as I told you earlier, uh, I, I know you're brilliant and I know you work hard, but the thing that surprises me most about you is what great vision you have. So, uh, and that's, that's a rare thing in this world. And that's why you have to run for public office. But anyway, uh, here's, <laughs> an, here's a song that was a, a top hit before you were born. Here's one from The Who, uh, I Can See for Miles. Brittany Kaiser, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Folks, we'll, we'll see you next week. Thanks.